And I think for many people, it will be revolutionary. There are many strategies for survival in a busy and noisy world full of extroverts and how we introverts can not only survive but thrive in this kind of environment. I had to take a nap. And this is what it means to be an introvert. I spent over 13 years working with him, meeting with him once a week, and he is the person who shaped my business mind. Whenever I experience negative outcomes, I tell myself this is meant to be as a lesson I needed to learn in my life so that I can move on. Welcome to the Nomad Solopreneur Show, the only podcast where you learn actionable tips on how to build and grow an online business by traveling the world. It's that time of the month. For the first time ever at the Nomad Solopreneur Show, we have a special guest. The guest does neither a nomad nor a solopreneur. And it's a dream start to this monthly tradition. I welcome at the mic one of my heroes, the one and only Chris Doe, an Emmy award-winning designer and director, founder of The Future, an online education platform with over 2 million subscribers that teaches people how to make a living doing what they love. He has taught sequentially design for over 15 years in California at Art Center College of Design, as well as Otis College of Art and Design. He has lectured all over the world and currently planning a workshop tour in Europe this April with focus on business and branding. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, Gabe. My pleasure. What I just said, probably anyone that follows you knows. But I would, I would like to know you, the man behind the brand, the human behind the words, the mind behind the numbers. Well, I'm a loud introvert. I'm a middle child. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I'm an above average student, but the world-class troublemaker. And I'm here to hopefully disrupt the education system as we know it. I will go as far as saying that you're already doing that. I follow your work for quite a while now, and the material that you're pushing every single day, it's not only extremely educational and material that you cannot find in schools, and even that the educational material in itself, it's helpful. What's even more inspiring is the fact that you are an introvert and showing up every single day, publishing content and educating others with English as a second language. How did you overcome all these impediments to put ourselves out there and disrupt the educational system? I don't know what choice we have in life. I mean, we're dealt certain cards. We can't pick our parents. We don't choose what city or we're born into and where we ultimately live as a young person. And so they become part of our narrative. And growing up, it's something I really struggled with, which was finding my identity and my voice. And it was the thing that was used against me to ostracize me from different communities for other children to bully me, to try to to make me feel like an outsider. And so I lived from, I guess, from ages 3 to 18, wondering who I am and not liking the way I look, the color of my skin. And my, my journey as an adult, and as many people have done themselves, is to find who we are and to find what we stand for. It took a long time and a lot of introspection to find that person. And I'm, I'm thrilled that I've come to a place finally that accepts who I am, that I love myself, my sense of self-awareness, and my self-esteem is, is, is very high. And, and I wish that for everybody. And I know that it's a struggle for a lot of people to find their place uh, amongst their family, their society, but also within themselves. I'm happy to hear that you overcome those challenges and you come at this place in life where you accept who you are. 
But I'm wondering if you still find yourself some days that you don't want to be on camera or step on stage, or is this something that you overcome entirely? I don't know if you overcome it entirely, but it does get a little bit easier. And just for full transparency, I had a pro call this morning. I spoke to a venture capitalist, and then I did a podcast interview, and I knew we had this call, so I had to take a nap. And this is what it means to be an introvert. A lot of times people think that people who are afraid of public speaking are introverts. Actually, everybody, uh, their instinct is not to like public speaking. But it's about how we manage energy around others, right? So when I'm talking to someone, it is very energy consuming. Like I'll probably have to like rest after this call because I'm really focused on you and being present at the moment, listening to you. And when I was younger, I thought this was a liability uh, that I wish I were more talkative. I wish I were the this social butterfly being very gregarious as I see these other people are quite popular. And it's something I didn't like about myself. But then later on, I realized there's two sides to to almost every condition in our lives. So when you're quiet and when you're feeling isolated and left out of the conversation, you learn a valuable skill in life. You learn how to listen. So introverts actually make great listeners or the potential is there. I'm not to say that extroverts aren't great listeners, but I find the extroverts have this energy where they're hard to contain. My friends that are extroverts want to talk all the time. So they have to struggle with keeping their own voice quiet while talking to someone. And so we, we are always working with and against what we have. I love the way you transform this liability into a lesson. Going back to these little tricks and tips that you have, uh, like taking a nap to recharge yourself, what other suggestions you have for those that are in the same situation? Sure. I could talk to you all day if you want about this, because there are many strategies for survival in a busy and noisy world full of extroverts and how we introverts can not only survive but thrive in this kind of environment. Number one, as we've talked about, is to be in touch with your energy level to know when you have enough or when you're trying to avoid something. Like physically, I couldn't keep my eyes open. So I told myself I need to be ready uh, to be attentive and alert for our conversation today. So I listened to my body saying you're tired. So I just went to take a nap. In the past, I wouldn't do that and I would pay the price because then I would be a little foggy. I might be yawning a lot during our conversation. I would feel like I'm disinterested, even though that's the furthest from the truth. Number two is when you're in an environment when everyone's talking and some someone's talking to you, but they don't seem to be listening, you can tell them. You can be very transparent. I've done this at least one time in my life where two extroverts were like just talking like this and then one person would turn to me and ask me a question I would say two words, then we turn to each other and just keep talking. So I knew I'm feeling like a third leg in this situation and I want to extricate myself. I want to go back to the hotel room. So I just, you know, meekly raised my hand and said, hey, uh, I would love to be part of this conversation. And I think when you ask me a question, you really want to hear the answer. And I want to tell you the answer, but it doesn't seem like there's space for me. And I'm, I'm feeling really fatigued. So if I start to check out and go back to the hotel, you know why I'm not trying to be rude. And they both just stopped. They turned and they allowed me space to speak. And sometimes that's what people, extroverts, need to hear from us. They say, I'd like to participate. I have something I want to share. Would you be interested in listening? If not, I'm not offended. It's okay. You guys do your thing. I I don't want to ruin the energy you all got going on, but I'm going to go back to my room. And just doing that and not being the victim in a situation and taking control of it, I think that's helpful. The third tip I'll give to someone in my situation is try to match and mirror people's energy and then bring them down to your level. I did this live on stage at Creative South last year 
where there's this guy, he's the host, he's super extroverted. And he's like, let's try it, Chris. So he would come up to me and pretend like he wanted a conversation with me. He's like, so, hey, Chris, I saw that you're here and blah, blah, blah. He would just talk really fast, right? And then I mirrored his energy. I'm just like, oh, hey, it's great to see you. But you know what? I have a question for you. So we lead and we pace. So I match and mirror his energy. So we're connecting. And then I just brought my energy right down. And you know what happened? He brought his energy down. And the people in the room who were introverts, like, they gasped a little bit like, oh, that's how you do that. So those are a couple of things that I can share with you. That mirroring example that you gave is something I haven't heard before and is definitely something that I want to try out. And speaking of mirroring or interacting with others, I noticed from the small conversation that you had before our call that you're not necessarily a fan of the small talk. You are a public figure that it's attracting a lot of uh, attention, a lot of, I assume, messages, emails, and comments. How do you manage all that without appearing to be rude? I like your question, Gabe. A couple of things I want to say about that, which is uh, I'm, I'm actually a fan of small talk, especially as an introvert. The, the best way to be comfortable talking to people, strangers, and talking on stage is to be able to begin somewhere. We all start somewhere humble. I remember one time um, I was hanging out with my older brother in Las Vegas. We were going to a UFC event, mixed martial arts, and he had just gotten divorced. And when you're with someone for a really long time, you don't know how to socialize anymore, especially with people from the opposite sex. And we're in an elevator writing it down, and there were two very young girls in the in the elevator, and they were headed to the pool. And my brother looks down, and he comments on one of the girls' uh, toenail polish. And then chatting a little bit, and it's very fun banter, and then they leave, and then we leave. And I give him a look. This is my older brother. I'm like, um, hey, a little young for you? I know you're like getting back on the horse and everything. He goes, you dummy. He went to a seminar on how to socialize and talk to people. And he says, it's important for you to practice small talk so that you can be ready for the big talk. And I, I wasn't fully believing him. Like I was like, yeah, pretty convenient talking to half-naked girls in an elevator, right? But true to his word, we're at the airport getting ready to leave. And I, I went to the counter to pick up our food. And I come back to the table and my brother's talking to this really old couple. And he's just trying to get to know them better. So we all need little practice. I, I say this to everyone who has an uncomfortable time talking to people. Exposure therapy is a thing. You expose yourself to situations and you increase your tolerance of, of how long you can deal with something like that. So have a small talk. Now, when it comes to me as a public figure, I don't really have a lot of time for small talk for all the reasons that you say. We've been socially conditioned to begin a conversation with small talk. Hey, how's it going? What's up? And we know that we're leading to something more substantive. So I just give people permission. Cut the small talk. Just ask me for whatever it is you want to ask. If you want help, if you want a job, just ask. Ask politely. Ask with some grace, but I, I know that the small talk is a pretext to getting to what you want. So I already know that now. And also I do for survival, the sheer volume of messages that I'm getting. It's like, I can't. Hi, how's it going? Uh, good to see you. It's like, get, just get to it. Get to it. I don't mind. I don't find that it's rude that you do. So I give permission to people. And this, like I said, it's counter culture to be able to do that. And, and then people accept it. Now, some people will, will see me and they'll criticize me and say, that's, that's too direct. You're being a little crass and rude, and they don't like that. And I think that's fine. 
a part of learning how to accept yourself and to stand in your own power is to say, I'm not for everyone. I am for some types of people, people who don't have a lot of time to waste, who want to get help, but don't want to deal with all the pomps and circumstance of the the pageantry of like how we're supposed to talk to each other. And you attract a tribe of people, people who really want to look at you in the eye and say, what is the meaning of your life? Why do you do what you do? Versus like, how's the weather going in California? That doesn't really matter to me right now. I love that. And speaking of the weather, I'm sure it's good almost all year round. <laughs> yeah, that's that's beautiful. It's a huge lesson for me there because as a people pleaser, I always try to reply to everyone, to try to look nice in front of them and yeah. to be basically like that person want me to be, which I don't need to, like you just said. And speaking of replying to messages, can you go a bit in details how you manage all of this? You have someone that is helping you like a view or something to reply to messages or to emails or I don't know, social media posts or YouTube videos, how you manage all of that? I have some help, but I'm still too private a person for someone to read my messages and my emails. So it's just me in terms of how I manage all that. I, I find that there are certain things I say over and over again. And so when I realize there's a pattern happening, I create a text replacement shortcut on my iPhone. And this apparently exists on every iPhone. You can do it. Uh, I don't know about the the Android version of this, but there's a way to do this. And so there are a lot of little things I'll say. And I'll I'll give you an example. I used to get a lot of requests like this, and now I, I can deal with them pretty quickly. Someone would say, hey, Chris, can you take a look at my logo? Can you take a look at my project or my website? And of course I can. I can't open this and look at it and give you any kind of meaningful critique and analysis because we're talking about at minimum three to 10 minutes of thinking, looking, and being thoughtful with my words. If I'm to be helpful, if I want to say rad job, that doesn't take any effort, but that's not also being real and honest with people. So I type in SS or SRRY and it writes out, sorry, I cannot take requests for individual critiques. I apologize. I hope you understand. So then I type in three letters and it writes the whole thing. And that's what I want to say to them, but it takes too long to type that. And so that's what I would suggest. Anybody that has to field a lot of messages on, on social create little macros or shortcuts that replace long responses. I have so many macros that I forget which ones are there. And so I have to look them up on my own computer. Like, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to type. Uh, so if if somebody shares something, I type in TFS, thanks for sharing. So it's just real easy. In terms of the content that you see, because people are like, you're on vacation. I, I see that you're chilling and yet you're still posting. What is going on? Okay, well, this is where I do have I don't consider them virtual assistants because they're they're more important than that. They're part of my content team. They don't work for me full time, but they're part of my content team. They have access to my account to post on my behalf because I say I need to post at least once a day. So they have a massive archive of content I've created already. And so they go through the process of posting something every single day. I've already written the captions. Everything's done. So they're helping me with that. And they're going to help flag spam accounts. But other than that, if someone from my account is responding, that someone is me. That's unexpected because at this level of engagement that you have on social media, number of followers, I didn't expect that you to actually reply to messages or to emails and so on. I'm already struggling. I'm just starting out and already struggling with this. And I was like looking into solutions, how to deal with everything to reply to everyone. When do you sleep? (laughs) <laughs> when do you do other things 
But you know what? When you read enough messages, you get really good at reading messages. And and as a condition of me responding, I tell people, please keep it super short. Get right to it. Don't tell me your life story. So people will write four paragraphs, right? They're they're writing a mini novelette, kind of like, this is too much for me to read. So I just write, can you ask a question? Can you summarize? I don't even read the copy. So then they start to understand that I can't read that much because it just takes too much time. Or when I look at a paragraph, I just look for the question. Where's your question in there? If there's no question, I just give them a thumbs up. That's as much as I can do because they're not asking me anything. Therefore, I do not want to volunteer anything because I think it's rude to give advice when people don't ask for it. The last thing that I'll do is people will tell me a story and then the question is not a real question. They'll say, what do you think? I say, I need you to reformulate this into a question. I don't want to give you what my thoughts are. It's too broad. It's too vague. It's not going to be helpful to anybody. That's a good thing to keep in mind. Next time I, when I will tag you on social media, I'll make sure to have a question on point. <laughs> to make sure I get the message. That's a nice trick. And um, I want to know a bit more about the future and how you structure all this business in order to... You already give away some tips. But for when it comes to full-time employees, how many do you have? Because most of the listeners are either freelancers that want to become solopreneurs or some of them actually build a full-time team and build a real business. How do you structure all this and how you manage to scale it? Sure. Um, I think we have anywhere between 12 and 16 people, 12 full-time on the payroll, working um, all over the world. And, and then I think three to seven independent contractors who work for a period of time to finish a contract and that's it. And the reason why I don't know this exact number is because I, I don't run the company. One of the tips I'll give to everybody is you can't be good at all things. So you have to find out what you're good at and you have to hire and delegate the rest. My chief operating officer is Ben Burns and Ben runs the company. He manages the team. He he does the quality control. He's putting the things that I talk about into an agenda and has to stand up meetings with people once a week. So it's important for you to find someone who makes a good partner for what it is that you don't like to do and that they like to do and excel at. And this is really critical. Ben's the kind of person who I can chat right now if I wanted to and ask him, hey, pull up the numbers for what we did in the last three years around this product and give me the percentage of growth or change. He would be able to do that in a second because he's so organized. He's written scripts and macros for everything. So every time I need something, almost in real time, he can pull it up. Now, if you were to ask me where the Photoshop file is for the last thumbnail, I'm like, really good question. I don't know. It's somewhere on one of these drives and I got to hunt and peck for it. And so... I'm all about leaning into your strengths and not spending too much time trying to fix all the parts that are your weaknesses because they don't really dramatically improve your quality of life. So I know I'm good at reading, writing, communicating, building decks, and trying to troubleshoot people's very complex problems. Everything else I have someone else try to do for me so that I can free my brain up to do the work that only I can do. And how do you arrive at this point in which to know exactly... Uh, because I think creative, I just assume that you try everything, like to try to do different things. I know that you're into motion design. And so how do you arrive at laying down exactly the things that you like doing it, you, you are best at, and to be able to outsource everything else? It's a very good question. I want to take the like off the table uh, because I'm good or best at something does not mean I should be doing it. I ask myself a different question. Could I pay someone else to do a job that is as close to what I do 
and allows me to then do other things. So if something is taking up a lot of my time where I think someone else can do or or multiple someone else's, like two or three people can do it, I would rather hire them so that I can have more free time. Peter Drucker, the legendary management consultant, the godfather of all this stuff, he said in his book, The Effective Executive, the single most important thing as the executive that you're supposed to do is gather the largest amount of consolidated discretionary time. It's a lot of words, right? Gather the largest amount consolidated discretionary time because he says, if you look at the schedule of any executive, now you are the executive of your company, whether you have zero employees or if you have 100 employees, what you have to do is figure out like where, uh, what activities are stealing your time because the most important thing for you to sit down and to be able to have a clear table with no agenda so that you can do nothing but think. This is your greatest value to the company. So when you're working on a Photoshop file for something or building an animation, that's taking away your ability to think because the entire rest of your team depends on you to be able to look towards the horizon and spot any potential things that might damage the ship like a giant freaking iceberg, okay? So if you're down there in the engine room shoveling coal or whatever you're doing, who is looking towards the horizon? No one. So this is a captainless boat and every boat needs a captain to steer and guide the crew. This is the most important thing. So whether I like doing it or if I'm the best at or, or whatever it is, that it is completely irrelevant. Now, I will save a few things, even though someone else could do for me to do because it gives me pure joy. But I have to recognize that I cannot put that label on every single thing because I might like everything. But that's not a good reason for me to do it. Love that. And this is definitely an exercise that I need to go through and to check the book out because yeah, I was in this situation so many times in my career and it's one of the reasons that stopped me to grow, stopped me to evolve as a business person. And speaking of evolving, I recently listened to one of your podcasts with Daniel Priestley, I think is his mm-hmm. name. And uh, I was blown away by the amount of information that you two put out there in terms of a key person of influence. And who are these influential people in your life that you're learning from, that you're looking up to and try to not go on the other side of things and absorb information from everywhere? Yeah, I'm going to answer this in two ways. The first part is going to be a little unexpected that um, I think I read somewhere it says wisdom is experience plus reflection. So we all want to be wiser And so the first part of that is we need to experience things. You need to put yourself in situations and conditions that you're not used to. That's the experience part. But if you don't ever think about the things you experience, you may not be very wise. You're just going from event to event without having learned anything. So the first and best teacher for anybody is to look into your life and your past and your history and look at the events and say, what did I learn from these things? So one exercise I do with people is I ask them, who are your mentors, your teachers, and your guides in your life? past, not present. So people will say, my parents, maybe a sibling, some teachers from junior high, from college, the people who have made an indelible mark in the way that you think. And then revisit those moments and ask yourself, what did I learn and how did I learn it? There's tons of value there. And I'll go back to junior high and I can tell you a handful of teachers who shaped my thinking and I still remember all those things because I'm able to mine my life experiences to be the best teacher to me. So we can speak pretty confidently and on solid ground when we say 
here's what I know and here's who I learned it from and here are the mistakes that I've made and here's how I hope not to repeat them. Those are excellent teachers and the ones that we should not overlook first. So that's step one. Step two is there are so many people out there, some of which you may agree with and some of which you may detest. I say pick a handful of of people that you would consider your mentors. And what Jim Rohn said is success leaves clues. Successful people leave a pretty clear breadcrumb trail of how they got where they got. They write books. They're on podcasts. They're speaking on stage. They've got courses. They've been interviewed on many different things. Start there. They've given you the clues. And what you want to do is go and pick them up. That's what Jim Rohn said. So for me, there are prominent authors when I pick up their book. I really love their style of writing. I love how they are able to clearly communicate complex ideas simply, and they have a way with words, and they're masterful storytellers. So I tend to spend a lot of time with a handful of quote-unquote mentors, many of which I've never spoken to and probably will never speak to. And I can admire them through their, their artifacts that they've left behind. The clues to their success are abundantly clear. A couple of people have shaped my life. Some are still living, some have passed. Uh, one of which is Blair Enns. He's written two books and I've consumed, when I say consume, I've inhaled, I've digested, I've processed, I've repackaged, I've taught from, I, I promote and recommend his books all the time. And therefore, I think without him ever giving me permission, I've become a disciple of his and we've grown a professional friendship. And I think that's really nice. But the person who's probably had the single biggest impact on my life is my my former business coach, Kier McLaren. He's since passed away. Uh, I spent over 13 years working with him, meeting with him once a week, and he is the person who shaped my business mind. Wow. Yeah, this is not the answer that I expected, but it's so mind-opening. And speaking of mentors, how do you suggest someone that is just starting his journey to find one, to follow those small breadcrumbs that you mentioned, and to find something that aligned to their thinking, their way of seeing things, or how exactly to search. Because we live in a world full of noise, full of gurus, full of coaches, and it's so hard. Yeah, I'd like to speak to that. There's a person who reached out to me and said, hey, Chris, who should I follow for marketing advice? That's a pretty innocent question. I said, well, you have Google. Why haven't you typed it in? Well, there's just so much noise out there and I want to find the perfect teacher. Again, a pretty normal, reasonable response. I said, well, will you let perfection get in the way of progress? Because even if you read one book and you don't think that's a great person, you've learned more than you know now. And so what oftentimes what people do is they'll sit by, they'll do nothing, they'll they'll learn nothing, they'll read nothing, they'll consume nothing because they're just in there waiting for the ultimate thing to appear. And, and that's a strategy. I don't love that strategy. And so I think it's Marcus Aurelius who said something like this, the the mind will take the shape of whatever you occupy the most, like whatever you think about, your mind will start to form around that. So if you want to be really good at marketing, now you know what you're looking for. So you can just type in on the internet, top 10 books on marketing, and you'll find many different people who say this set of books versus that set of books. And if you want to be If you want to be really analytical about it, you can compare and contrast several lists and you can say, are there any overlapping recommendations? Because maybe then that's enough proof for you to say, like, that's something worth looking into. And as soon as you find something, you don't have to search anymore. 
Go on Amazon, type it in. How many reviews does it have? Are they mostly positive? Go and buy a book or go to the library and get the book. That's even better because it's free and you don't have to buy anything. Then read the book. And in the book, you go to the back and the and any self-respecting uh, author will cite where they uh, got all these ideas in the footnotes and, and the bibliography in the back. So go in the back. And so if you enjoyed this book, they'll tell you where they got their ideas from. And sooner or than later, you'll find a whole source of resources that you trust, that you like, uh, that are mind-expanding. Why not do that? It's really not that hard. So I think anybody who says to me, I can't find a mentor, I, I just think that's an excuse. That's a strategy for not doing anything. Beautiful advice. And when it comes to books, I know that you write at least one book, A Pocket Full of Dough. And what was the reason behind it? The story isn't super inspiring. I'm going to tell you to you because I want to keep it real with you, okay? So several of my friends and fans are like, oh, I love the way you think and your tweets and what you write about. You should really write a book. And I was thinking, I'm not a writer. I don't have time for this. And they kept saying it over and over again. So I'm like, fine, I'll do it. And then I go to my team. And it's one of my creative, Greg. I said, Greg, let's stand up a Kickstarter page. Let's set the minimum at $30,000. If we raise $30,000, I'll write a book. Thinking that I'm not going to raise $30,000 for a book. And sure enough, we hit $30,000 in raising money for a Kickstarter campaign in the first week. So by the time the campaign wraps, I think we're at $87,000 and it blows my mind. Not because it's $87,000, but because there's a, a top tier pledging for five people to give me $1,000 for a book. And they were gone. Wow. That means five people who are fans of ours supported us so much that they were willing to give us $1,000 for a book. That is a reflection, I believe, in the value you've given to others that they're happy to support you. And I'll tell you, one of those people and their names, because I'm I'm super just honored that this happened. One of the people, one of the five who gave me $1,000 for a book, his name is Blair Enns. So a guy that I admired, that I've looked up to, that I've talked about, that I know from afar, had recognized that I also help by recommending his books and he sells books. And so he's like, let me support you. And then later on, he he told me, he's like, if there's anything you ever need, you let me know and I'll help you. That's beautiful. And how often this can happen? Someone that you look up to is just coming out of the blue to support you in something yeah. that you didn't even want to do in the first place. It's just, I don't know the feeling of that. I just can relate to something that just happened recently to me. It's this person that I look up to and I sent him a direct message to be in my podcast and here he is. So yeah, it's just this type of yeah. feelings I think are just overwhelming sometimes in terms of a good thing. And after you write that book and you put it out there, what was the reaction? What were the benefits? And what was that effect on you and your business? Sure. I wrote the, the book as a love letter to our friends and fans to say I've spent the time, it was painful to write the book, to put my thoughts together so you have one convenient resource so you don't have to hunt and peck all throughout the internet. As searchable as it is, sometimes I can't even find my own stuff. So it's nice to have one source for it that people can reference. And I think that's a good thing. The, the first reactions was, uh, what is taking the book so long? And so some of my supporters like, you know, cancel my order. This is taking way too long. And I have to apologize because it took a really long time. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, talking about Blair. Blair said something on one of his podcasts. The reason why it takes so long to write a book and why it's so painful is because you can't unpublish a book. 
once you publish a book, it's out there, whether it's a thousand copies or 10,000 copies or a hundred thousand copies, you can't, you can't take it back. So writing a book is a process of a lot of soul searching and, and purging your thoughts and your demons and laying it to bear for the world to see. And so you have to grow and change in the process. And so not everyone's ready for that. And the secondary and third wave of reaction has been super positive. I was mostly joking about the negative feedback, like why is it taking so long? But to this day, and it's been years since I published the book, there are still people who are buying it, who are sharing on social saying, this is my go-to book. There's so much wisdom and nuggets of gold that they reference the book over and over again. So in a way, I'm having the effect on some stranger that I've yet to meet. I hope I'll meet one day that others have had on my life. And so it's really neat feeling inside to be able to kind of carry that on. I've benefited from the knowledge of others, the wisdoms of the wisdom of others. And now I get to play a small role in passing it on to the next group of people, which feels wonderful. I will say this though. There are a lot of people who write books for the wrong reason because writing a book becomes a business card as I've heard about or as I've heard it described and it becomes part of a marketing funnel and to quickly establish that you're some some authority or expert in a specific field. And I read some of those books and they're pretty garbage and, and I'll tell you how you know. When a book is filled with promotional links to other materials and you feel like they left you at the altar, you know, like in a wedding where I thought we're getting married, but there's nobody here. So I paid for your book to learn something, but it feels like the thing that you want to say is not in the book because now you want me to go and click and give you my email address so that your email marketing funnel team can start attacking my inbox. That leaves a bad taste in my mouth. A, the book isn't very good, but B, it's disingenuous. So my feeling is give in as generous way as you can Every time you create a piece of content, because that generosity will come back to you, not in the way that you think, but it will come back to you in exponential ways. Now, if you ask me in 2014, when I recorded my first YouTube video, would I be talking to some guy at six o'clock across the world or wherever you're at and have a small legion of fans? I would say, no, I just didn't know that that's possible. But it was an act of generosity that started to open the door. Uh, such that recently a a major book publisher reached out to me and said, we would love to be your publisher for your next book. In a previous life, I chased publishers and I didn't give them any time of the day. And today I have opportunities that open up for me and I'm starting to reap the benefits of this. I'm the advisory board member for several companies that give me an equity stake in their company because of what I've done in the past. So if you want to reap the rewards of your generosity, you have to plant the seeds right now. And they don't ripen until months or years later and you have to play that long game. Love that. And I noticed that you're one of the few that are pushing content that often and they're rarely putting like call to action and only leading with giving. You're the perfect example to anyone that is starting a creative journey. But what I see here is that we are often drawn to the other side of things. We have to make money. We have to sustain a lifestyle. What advice you'll give to those that are not willing to go the long game, to go the, this road of giving, 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 giving? Do they have actually any chances of succeeding at this? Or they're just going on that marketing funnel journey that you mentioned? Well, we, we kind of live in a time and place where the culture seems to celebrate instant success and 
no no work, effortless, painless ways of making money without skill. And how do I know this? Is because if you look at the marketing that is aimed towards young men, most of them are almost the exact same pitch. Here's one thing I discovered that's a secret that'll make you millions and it doesn't require any money or no time and, and, and no effort from you. And they keep pitching that, like whether it's six-pack abs or an Amazon drop shipping business, some kind of weird secret. The secret is you're the sucker and that's how they make money. And so you sign up for these things. So that's the culture and the time in which we live in. It's kind of hard to fight that. I'm not really here for those kinds of people. If you want to take shortcuts, take all the shortcuts in your life. And when you wake up one day and you're 40, 50, or 60 years old, and you say, what happened to my life? What happened to my fortune? What happened to my wife? What happened to my kids? You'll have your answer. But the thing I can say for people who are ready to play the long game is it looks something like this. I heard Alex Hormozzi phrase it like this. He, he'll, he'll ask some young person, what do you want? They're like, I want to be a millionaire. He goes, okay, good. If I tell you to do something and you do for five years without any financial reward, but on the fifth or sixth year, when I say you're done, you'll be a millionaire, would you do it? And most people will say no. They'll say no. And, and that's the reality. He, of course, he's emphasizing a potentially fictional scenario, but most people won't. And so if you look at our numbers, if you literally look at our numbers in 2014, I think we did something like $15,000 in revenue. It took years. It didn't take months. It took years for us to get to a place where it was a viable business model. And so if you go out there and you create a business of giving, of being generous and helping others achieve their goals, you're going to be broke for a while. I don't know if it'll be two years. I don't know if it'll be 15 years. It depends on your, your cadence, the frequency, and the quality of your content. So of course you can't do that. But there are things that you can do. Number one is you can reduce your expenses. You can just buy less things. You can live more humbly so that you can reduce the amount of money you need to survive. In fact, you can move back in with your parents if you have a relationship with your parents or your, with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and just move back in with them and try to reduce your costs and have a clear and open communication with them to say, I need your support. If you're willing, I, I need to do this for about five years and I have a plan. I'm going to work on this and hold me accountable. But in five years time, I will achieve this level of success. And hopefully they'll support you. And then the next thing that you can do is you go out and you do some kind of job that isn't soul-sucking, but helps you to pay the bills. I recommend that creatives who want to be able to, to build influence, uh, to build a personal brand, not to work in a creative job where they are required to give 10, 12, 14 hours of their creative spirit and their energy every single day, including weekends, because you will leave nothing left for yourself. Jim Rohn said, you know, Work hard on your job, but work harder on your personal development. If you work at a job, right, you work on a job, you'll make a living, you work on yourself, you'll make a life. And that's much more important. So we have to kind of balance these two things that we can't show up for ourselves as the last priority on our list or the lowest priority. We just can't. The reason why I asked you this because I was expecting an answer that our listener will actually take into consideration because... Every overnight success is like 10 years in the making. It's not just happening. And yeah, I was following you and noticed that you arrive at 20,000 followers in two years or something. So this two million didn't happen overnight. And as you mentioned, all those years of not being on a profit and not making money and just burning, burning money, it's things that people don't see. They just see the success story. They see the person that appear after that, but they don't see all the struggles, all the failed business, all the failed failings that they have. And speaking of failures, do you have one particular example in mind 
let's not call it the biggest failure, but a failure that literally shape you or shape your business that you can share? I don't love the failure because of the way my mind frames situations, right? I had said to you, wisdom comes from experience and reflection. So whenever I experience negative outcomes, I tell myself this is meant to be as a lesson I needed to learn in my life so that I can move on. So I don't categorize those things as failures. They're just very expensive lessons. And I, I move past them pretty quickly. But I will tell you something I've done, which I would consider my biggest failure uh, to date professionally is when I started a second office when we we're running a service design company called Blind. We have an office in Los Angeles and I was told by my sales reps, we're not getting enough work from the East Coast because we need a physical presence there to know that we're, we're vested in, in the community and on the coast, right? So I, I took a half-hearted approach to this. I, I rented space from an editorial company so that we would have an address when nothing happened. And so this begins a whole sunk loss bias mentality where I've spent money already for a year renting a space I never use. The only way I can recoup that money is to spend more money. So this is like the money pit. And so then I say, okay, well, let's go rent an office space because the problem with it was, wasn't that it wasn't a good idea. It was because we didn't have enough office space of our own. So we rented a whole office space, renovated it, staffed it with uh, several people. And so now we're spending even more money. And we do this for years. To this date, I'm not sure if we ever broke even. All I know is a, a giant money pit. And ultimately, I just had to take a hit. And the hit was, you know what? Sometimes we make not good business decisions based on bad intelligence because having a New York office did not double our revenue. All it did was double our overhead. I had two offices to pay for, two office managers, two executive producers, two creative directors, and the list goes on and on and on. And so the lesson to learn, and this probably cost me let's say a million dollars. I don't know because this is an expensive endeavor. It's a million dollar lesson. And the lesson is you cannot outsource your core competency, something that I should have known, but I didn't. The problem, reason why I think ultimately this office never really took off was because it had zero DNA from people in the LA office. No one on my team, including myself, wanted to live in New York or to uproot and move ourselves over there. So we hired a brand new team who didn't work with us in-house for a number of years they just were brand new hires and they created an office that looked and sounded like us, but it was nothing like us. And so we're trying to sell more of us. This is not the strategy to do that. So to me, that was a pretty big failure. Huge learning as well. And because we have a tradition in this show that every guest goes through a challenge and I prepare a challenge for you. Okay. I want you to throw away your personal brand and huge following, which I know that you didn't make it easy. But imagine yourself being a freelancer right now, and you're currently trading time for money on different freelancing platforms. Your goal is to stop that and start either a one-person business or achieve freedom in your own terms, even that's freedom of money, time, and location. What would be your steps or strategy to achieve that as actionable as possible? <laughs> okay, it's a good question. I think these marketplaces are some kind of welfare system. It's enough to keep you from starving, but it's not enough to get you ahead. So it's very problematic. The first thing I would do is I would look at the number of hours that I work in a week and look at how much money I'm able to bill. And I would just do a simple calculation to figure out what the effective hourly rate is. And I also look at months of billings and say, yeah, what is the average monthly amount of money that I'm making? And I would project that times 12 to see what I'm making a year. So then I establish a baseline for what I'm worth in the marketplace. 
I imagine that number to be quite low. Now, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm going to guess somewhere like $15,000 a year. Now, in the United States, depending on where you live, $15,000 is below the poverty line. In San Francisco, the poverty line is $100,000 a year. So I'm well below the poverty line. What happens is we get and complacent from websites like this to generate leads for us. And there's a reason why I'm there, I think. I think it's I'm there because my skill set, my portfolio is not focused enough so that no one is going to hire me organically. There's going to be no word of mouth. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to pick an area that I feel like in the next five to 10 years, I could lose myself studying and becoming better at so that I'm super passionate about. I need to make that hard decision. So that's decision number one. So what is it I'm going to do? Second decision I have to make is who I'm going to do this for. So let's say I like I really love logo design. Let's just say, and I want to get better at it. So I'm going to develop a portfolio around logo design. But that only says what I love to do. It doesn't determine who I love to do this for. I love comic books. So what I want to do is I want to do logo design for comic book mastheads and comic book related entertainment properties. So if you need a new masthead for your comic book, if you need identities, sub, sub-identities, whatever it is that you need related to comic book characters, DVD packaging, I'm your logo boy. And that's what I want to proliferate my portfolio with so that someone cannot make the mistake of wondering, what is it that I do? Whether it's on Behance or Dribble or on social media, every time they see my name, they associate comic logo boy or kid or man. It doesn't really matter. And they can see that I'm super passionate about this. And then what I would do is I would research the hashtags that are most relevant to people who are looking for this thing so that they can find this. This is important to me, right? And then I would do my best to appear on any podcast, any YouTube channel that talks about anything related to comic books. And I would geek out. I would volunteer to do work for them. I would help them in exchange for mentioning me or promoting me as a just an act of goodwill. No contracts. I will help you. Please help me too. And I find that most people, not all people, most people are generally good. Like I'm a humanist. I'm an optimist. So I think if you help people and you do it out of generosity of your own heart, when they meet someone, they're like, you know what? You got to talk to Chris. He did our channel logo. And then they tell friends and friends tell friends and things start to move in the opposite direction because I need to wean myself off of these marketplaces and building direct relationships with people. And my goal is very simple. My goal is to have some work that is recognizable, that has some media attention, such that I can leverage that for much higher paying work. So what I would do is develop a press kit and a whole case study, and I would build this out really big. So just because I design a logo doesn't mean I'm only going to show a logo. I might make a sign out of it. I might make sample mock-ups for comic book covers. It's limited edition packaging, a hardcover edition, a graphic novel, black and white edition, Maybe I'll make a step and repeat pattern for a uh, red carpet event. Uh, Maybe a limited edition tin case that I'm going to design. So because I love this so much, you can't stop me. I'm just going to work on this over and over again. I'm going to go to conferences and conventions. And I'm going to hand out a business card. And everybody that I can meet, I'm going to tell them I make logos for comic books and entertainment properties. If you know anyone that needs help, please consider me. I might even make a t-shirt that says that. And I might use a very bright color and be a little bit obnoxious so that when people see me, I don't look like everybody else. I don't want to just be different. I want to be radically different. And I want to lean in on the differences, the things that make me unique so that I stand out from the crowd. I think within a year or two of doing this, I will have an established business that no longer sells time for money, that I'm selling project-based fees. and I'm starting to work with maybe independent comic book publishers 
and people who who want to to work in that space and the adjacent industries around them. Oh, it's a short masterclass right there. And I wish I can listen to this like years ago when I was a freelancer to actually fast up my journey. Of course, it's not going overnight, as you mentioned. It can take years to build this. But having this knowledge and starting to apply it, well, I'm simply speechless. Speaking of, you share a lot of wisdom, both on your social spots, on your YouTube channel. And I know that you're planning a tour in Europe in April. Can you share more about that? Yes. Thank you very much for asking me about this, Gabe. So I was recently in Australia and we did a three-city workshop tour. And after two and a half years of lockdown pandemic, not travel, I just missed it so much. Now, this is going to sound like a contradiction to the listeners. Like, wait a minute, Chris, I thought you're an introvert and you need to take naps. Well, I've learned to adjust my muscle to being around people and having been isolated and talking to people virtually, which is very fatiguing to me. I actually enjoy very much connecting with real people, seeing their faces. Now, full disclosure, I probably have it a little bit easier than most people because because of the goodwill that we've created. When I show up in town, people very warmly and, and lovingly embrace me and say, look, thanks so much for being here. I've gotten so much value from you. And that's very affirming for my creative soul to hear these things and to see the actual people that previously were just a conversation on the internet. So it's really neat for me to then put a face to a name or a voice or a message and it's super cool to do. And in doing so, I was really inspired. I was thinking, gosh, I enjoy this so much. I'm becoming an even better teacher. The more I teach, the more I learn, the more I learn, the more I teach. And so for me, I wanted to go back to Europe. We've done this before, but not on a scale. My friend, Annalie Hansen said, Chris, let's, let's just have you come to Europe. I'll organize it. I'll produce it. I just want to help you. And I, I need to meet you in person. So they, these are all great reasons. So let's do it. So we have currently seven cities. I think we have 10 or 11 talks designed. They're built around two workshops. One is on business development and just helping you to learn everything that I've learned in the last 20 plus years running two businesses. And I want to teach it to you at an eight hour workshop. And the other one is a personal branding workshop, which is also eight hours long. These are super intensive. They're hands-on, they're transformative. This is what we want to do. This isn't me talking for eight hours. This is me talking, challenging you, asking you big questions, getting you to argue and debate and figure out where you stand. And hopefully I'll unlock a lot of your mindset around money, around pricing, about why people buy. The first three topics I'll be talking about in the business clinic is uh, buyer psychology, sales psychology, and pricing psychology. And I think for many people, it will be revolutionary. And then we're going to help you craft an irresistible offer and to create some attraction marketing so you can bring the right clients to you. That's the business one. Personal branding, I have so many new tools and I'm, I'm gonna geek out on comic fandom, storytelling, the building the hero's arc, especially as it relates to you, helping you get in touch with yourself and discovering something about you that you didn't know about so that you can communicate it to the world so you can share your gift. You are a gift and gifts need to be given to people for, the, for it to be appreciated. I'm gonna teach you how to do that. Well, I wish I would be in Europe at that time, but unfortunately I'll be still in Asia. And for everyone listening and it's around Europe or plan to travel, spring is nice in Europe. And the most important part, the knowledge that uh, Chris is sharing is, is just unbelievable. For someone that is following him for years and learning from him, I can say hands down. And you're already listening to this episode, how much value he provided in just one hour. Imagine eight today's workshop. That will be something to not miss. And hopefully you'll manage to do this around the world as well after you 
paved the way in Europe because yeah. I definitely want to catch up uh, somewhere. I know a friend that is going uh, to one of your events in uh, Europe and uh, I'm super jealous of him, I must say. <laughs> oh, thank you. We've sold 250 seats already. I'm looking to get anywhere a little bit north of 600. So like I mentioned, we're, we're going to be in a couple different cities. So, so London, Berlin, Barcelona, Amsterdam, Bucharest, and Porto. Hopefully Warsaw as well, we're not sure. So those are the seven cities. It's happening April 14th to May 3rd or May 5th. I'll, I hope to see you. I'm, I'm making the effort to meet you more than halfway. If you And Europe is super easy to travel around, right? You jump on a train or plane. It's very easy to get around Europe and I hope to see you there. Aside from learning from me, um, I, I think that some of the unspoken things are the people that you'll meet. I find this to be true. Whenever I travel and I stay at a nice hotel, Because it's a nice hotel, it attracts a certain type of person. And so the vibe is really nice. So what was really neat for me were to see the organic groups that started to form and going out afterwards for drinks. And you all live in the same town, but you haven't had an opportunity to meet each other. And the commonalities, you're, you're both invested in your personal development and you have the future in common. So it's a great jumping off point. I sure hope I will see you. Me too. And you're, you're going to my home country to Romania. So that's amazing. It's Bucharest. And... Um... I will also put in the show notes a link for anyone interested on how to book a ticket and what would be the easiest way for those listening and not having access to the get the ticket. Very easy. If you were just to follow me on any social platform from Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, even YouTube, we're going to be putting the links everywhere. There, check the link in the bio and I hope to see you there. But easy, you know, as we talked, just ping me and ask me, hey, can I get the link to Euro Tour? And it's just that simple. Then I will then send you a link. It's super easy. Thank you so much. And yeah, definitely check on your favorite platform, the show notes, because I'll put the link there as well. And before wrapping up, I have this time a request from you for our listeners to make a short challenge that they able to complete in just 24 hours to drastically transform their freelancing business. I know that you share already a lot in that short masterclass, but what's that one thing they, they'll be able to do in just 24 hours to jumpstart their freelancing. Okay. If you don't already have a LinkedIn account, first of all, get on LinkedIn, create an account. It's the most untapped place where the algorithm is the most generous of any social platform that I know of. Um, there's a stat that came out, less than 1% of LinkedIn users actually ever create a post or piece of content. That means you have a huge advantage, whereas on other platforms, people are creating content all the time. There isn't a lot of content on LinkedIn, relatively speaking, and they're starving for it. So if you ever want to see one of your posts pop that's much bigger than the audience you currently have, create a piece of content on LinkedIn. I'm going to tell you how to do this, okay? I want you to start at the end. I want you to think about giving someone a gift. And the gift is a piece of knowledge that you have, something you've learned. And the more contrarian it is, the better, meaning it goes against the grain. So here's something that no one knows. Here's one secret or here three myths that people think about building websites or logos that you're going to correct or seven things you've learned about building X, Y, or Z. And I want you to give it all, be super thorough, include steps, key learnings and stories, speak from your personal experience, your own lived experiences, not from things that you've read and include one personal photo. And the photo doesn't even have to relate exactly 100% one to one to what you're writing about, but it should be a photo that captures people's attention. It should not feel like a highly polished studio photography photo. It needs to feel real. So one of my posts that got a lot of attention was when I showed a 
photo of one of my first office spaces, which was out of my house in Venice. And it was using Staples or Home Depot furniture or Office Depot furniture with a wooden door as a tabletop and two makeshift Ikea legs and just showing people how it began. So that is me mining my own photo archives and sharing that with someone to say like big things have humble beginnings and that for all of you to stick to what you're doing and do not give up and do that. So it got a ton of likes and shares and comments and that started to get the snowball rolling and it just built momentum from there. Uh, One easy way for you to get work is to include an additional resource related to the thing that you shared. So let's say you wrote a top 10 list of things to do or resources. Write about five or write about seven. And at the end of it, say, I just completed a top 10 list. If you want the other three and you're not going to miss this, leave a comment below, like whatever word, just some unique word like, give me more. When they do that, it's doing a lot of things for you. A, they're raising their hand. They're saying, I volunteered to be marketed to because I want the resource. The seven that you shared were amazing. They're helping you with the algorithm because everyone who comments then shares that, the algorithm shares that to some of their followers. So it gets put back into the timeline. This is how you get posts to go, quote unquote, viral. So you have a call to action. It's a simple ask. And then you slip into their DMs and you say, thanks for your interest for the free resource. Here's the link and you just give it to them. And then later on, if you wish, you can say, following up on this, do you have any questions? I'm available uh, next week for these three time slots. If you pick one, I'd be more than happy to give you an analysis or a critique or something that you can give of greater value. So all of this is an example of Seth Godin's book, Permission Marketing. It begins with a generous offer and it deepens in value and participation. So you give more value then there's greater participation. So the first thing is you give a little bit of value. The participation is read it and comment. As soon as they comment, you give more value. Now they're going to read a longer form article. And then you can say, would you like to hop on a call to solve XYZ problem? And if they say yes, they're now going to commit even more time to you. So you have to build a curriculum of building greater or increasing value to your prospect. And this is going to be a great way for you to turn strangers into friends and friends into customers. Well, thank you so much, Chris. This challenge is just something that anyone that is reluctant to post on LinkedIn until now, you have the perfect reason now. It's not taking more than a day and you should go up there and show yourself because indeed, it's, as you mentioned, it's the most untapped social network right now. And yeah, thanks again for all the wisdom that you share in this show. Everyone, if you're not doing it already, go follow Chris Doe at the future without E. And thanks again so much for taking the time on your busy schedule to jump into this call. I really, really appreciate this. Thanks again, Chris. My pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoy recording it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for relevant links to resources and to subscribe to your favorite podcast station to be notified when the next episode drops. Until next week, this is Gabe with the Nova Solopreneur Show. Pura Vida!